We are continuing to look at first, and well, we're now into Second Kings. So, if you have a Bible, if you turn, please, to Second Kings chapter five. In the Church Bibles, it's page three seven one, or in the larger print Bibles, five seven two. Second Kings chapter 5, and we'll read the whole of chapter 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. But he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. 
And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean. By not accepting from him what he brought, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything is all right. Gehazi answered, my master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere. Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. This is God's word. And this is a story about two men. Yes, there are quite a few other people involved. But this is about Naaman and Gehazi. And what matters most to each of them. If we had to sum up the message of this passage, we could say, choose your treasure. As we look at this passage, that is the challenge it has for us. It shows us, first of all, a sick man who abandons pride to find wholeness. And it also shows us a privileged man who embraces sin and finds decay. And after we've looked closely at these two men, the question we're left with is, which one are we with? Which one of these men is most like me or you? First, a sick man abandons pride to find wholeness. We discover immediately in this chapter, Naaman is not just any soldier. He's a remarkable soldier. Verse 1 tells us he's commander of the army of the king of Aram. In case the word Aram doesn't ring a bell with you, 
At this point in time, the Arameans are the most significant enemies of Israel. They come from the northeast of Israel. And during the reign of King Ahab, they attacked Israel at least twice with the aim of reducing Israel to dust. That's the army Naaman is in charge of. And amazingly, verse 1 tells us, through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. That's not referring to any victory over Israel. Up to this point, God has protected Israel from the Arameans. But it shows us God's power is not limited to what goes on in Israel. God is sovereign over nations and wars outside of Israel too. Naaman doesn't worship the Lord, not yet anyway, but he's still being used to accomplish the Lord's purposes. And this mention of the Lord has another significance. When verse 1 tells us Naaman's victories have made him a great man, we know that his greatness is a gift from the Lord. It's the Lord who gave Nathan Naaman his victories. Naaman is at the top of the ladder in terms of his accomplishments and his position and his fame. He's highly regarded. But, verse 1 goes on to tell us, he's sick. He has leprosy. And you probably have a footnote in your Bible explaining that the word translated leprosy can refer to various different skin diseases. In other words, although we are calling it leprosy for convenience, we really don't know exactly what it was Naaman had. What we do know is that as yet it hasn't confined Naaman to bed, but this is serious. We know it's serious because of the enormous amount the king of Aram is willing to pay to have Naaman cured. We'll come to that in a moment. But before that, we need to realize how an Israelite would have read verse 1. And the first people to read this book were Israelites. God's law had very detailed things to say about leprosy. Lepers were excluded from life in Israel. They were not just physically unwell, they were considered to be unclean. And until they were healed and pronounced clean, they had to live outside the society of God's people. And the point of that was to teach God's people about sin. So yes, there may also have been concerns about spreading infection maybe, but the main point was to teach Israel about spiritual sickness. To show how sin makes us unclean and excludes us from God's presence. Since they left Egypt, God had been present among his people Israel. First in the tabernacle tent, while they traveled through the desert, and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. Those people with physical skin diseases lived away from God's presence to show how the spiritual disease of sin shuts us off from God's presence. So if we go back to Naaman, it is obvious to any Israelite reading this, this guy is doubly cut off from God. He's a foreigner 
And not just any foreigner, he's an Aramean. And if that wasn't bad enough, he's a leper as well. Naaman could not be further apart from the Lord. What hope does he have? Well, there's one Israelite who has hope for Nathan. Look again at verse 2. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Samaria is another word for the northern kingdom of Israel. And the prophet in Samaria is Elisha. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 4, and we saw how at this point in time, Israel as a whole has given itself up to idolatry. They're worshiping all kinds of other gods. But in the midst of that spiritual death, God has been bringing life in Israel. Small numbers of men and women are worshiping the Lord. And this girl comes from those worshipers of the Lord. As horrible as it must be for her to be taken captive, to be carried off to Aram, she is God's gift to Naaman's household. And I don't say that insensitively, as if her troubles don't matter. We can say this girl is God's gift in this situation because that is how she sees it, apparently. That's how she behaves. She's not bitter towards this family who has taken her captive. She doesn't wish evil on them. She wants to see them blessed. If only my master would see Elisha, he would cure him. That is an amazing attitude. And it probably rebukes some of us. It rebukes us maybe for the much less gracious attitude we have to those who do us a lot less harm in life. Do we see our neighbors, do we see our work colleagues as nuisances, as rivals maybe? Or do we see them as people who need the God we know? People who need the wholeness our God can give them. No matter what they may have done to us. This young girl from Israel is in a very unpleasant situation. But she's seeking to be a blessing in her situation to these people who have done wrong to her. She's directing a sick man to the God who can make him whole again. And the reaction to what this young girl says shows how serious Naaman's sickness is. He tells the king of Aram about it and he then sends Naaman to Israel with a letter of introduction and an enormous amount of money and clothes. But notice the king of Aram has not figured out how the Lord works. Verse 6 says that he writes to the king of Israel with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. In other words, look, he's an important man. And the payment I'm sending should be more than adequate. So 
take care of it for me, will you? I hear you have a healer on your staff down there, so get him on the case for me. The king of Aram doesn't know how the Lord works. But the king of Israel does. This is probably Ahab's son Joram. And Ahab's family have learnt from painful experience the Lord's prophets don't work for anyone but the Lord. Trying to buy their services doesn't work. Elisha is not on the king of Israel's staff. And the king of Aram's money is not going to do the trick. And so the king of Israel goes into a tiz. Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. Joram is right. This situation is beyond him. But he's wrong that it's about trying to pick a quarrel. Naaman and his king are seeking help the only way they know how. By presenting their credentials and their wealth. They don't know how the living God works. So the question is, when Naaman discovers how the Lord works, will he be willing to humble himself and accept it? Or will he keep relying on his credentials and his wealth? The king of Israel is tearing his robes. Elisha hears about this situation. And he says to the king, send this man to me. So Naaman arrives at Elisha's house. And look how that arrival is described. Picture in verse 9. Naaman went with his horses and chariots. He's a great man and he wants to make a great appearance. He wants Elisha to know he is somebody. Naaman assumes when he sees these top-of-the-range chariots on his front lawn, he'll drop what he's doing. He'll greet Nathan, Naaman, with the appropriate excitement. He'll heal him with a flourish and maybe even a puff of smoke thrown in as well. How do I know that Naaman is thinking all those things? Because he says it in verse 11, I thought he would do this for me. One writer says, Naaman is a great man and he expects great things to be done for him. But what Elisha actually does is to stay indoors, send out a messenger to tell Naaman, go wash in the Jordan seven times. Nothing could be more calculated to insult a great man who's immensely proud of his greatness. And of course, Elisha knows that very well. Elisha wants to see, is this proud man willing to humble himself before God? Or does his reputation matter more to him than his wholeness? What does Naaman want most? To be healed or to be given the respect and applause he thinks he deserves? Well, initially, it looks like Nathan, Nathan is going to, Naaman, 
it looks like Naaman is going to go for the respect and the applause. It's because I can see him sitting at the back. Verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me. In Hebrew, that to me is emphasized. Surely to me, the great man Nathan, he would come out and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman has been shown the way to wholeness and he takes it as an affront. This no-name prophet wouldn't even open his door to me. And the best he can do is send me to wash in his crummy Israelite river. That I come all this way to be treated like that. We know from verse 1, Naaman's greatness is a gift from God. The victories that made his reputation were given by God. Naaman has nothing of his own to boast about. We know that. But is Naaman willing to learn it himself? And this incident on Elisha's front lawn is not just a test for Naaman the Aramean. This is the test for everyone who comes to God seeking wholeness. It's for everyone who recognizes they're spiritually sick. They're going to be faced with this. They're going to be insulted like this. Because what what God asks of us always involves setting aside our pride. Letting go of our desire to have our accomplishments recognized and celebrated. Earlier we read from the New Testament, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. What that chapter in Corinthians goes on to tell us is that the Christian message is just as offensive to people's pride as Elisha's message was when he told Naaman to go and wash in the River Jordan. When men and women begin to recognize their need, when they waken up to their brokenness and come and ask, what can the church do for me? What is the message we have for them? Admit you cannot save yourself. No matter how great a person you are, Agree with God that your achievements and your efforts cannot heal the sickness of your sin. And then come. Put your trust in a man who was crucified outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Could there be anything more calculated to insult people who believe they're good people? Not only are you telling me my achievements don't count with God, you're telling me what does count is putting my faith in a man who was executed as a criminal in a place I've never been to. The way God deals with people today 
is the way he dealt with Naaman on Elisha's front lawn. If you really want to be healed of your sin, if you really want to be cleansed and made whole, then lay aside your high opinion of yourself. Stop boasting in what you have and what you are. God says, come to me as you really are. A spiritual leper who can do nothing to heal yourself. And then God says, do what I ask of you. Put your trust in my son, Jesus. He's the one who took the sickness of your sin. He's the one who was separated from me on the cross. So you could be healed of your sin and reconciled to me. So the question for us is, are we too proud to do what God asks? Would we rather hold on to our high opinion of ourselves than come to God humbly? To come as spiritual lepers who are helpless to heal ourselves. It looked like Naaman was going to walk away from God's healing. But his servants plead with him to realize how foolish that would be. They tell him, forget your pride. You've been given a promise of healing. Take it. And Naaman does take it. Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored. And he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept the gift from your servant. When Elisha refuses to accept a gift from him, Naaman says, Okay then, can I have something from you? Can I take home as much earth as a pair of mules can carry? Now, what on earth does he want that for? Apparently, he wants it to use as an altar to the Lord. He says in verse 17, Please give me the soil for or because your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. And to make it clear who he is making sacrifices to, Naaman is going to do it on Israelite soil. And so now we know when Naaman said, I know there's no God in all the world except in Israel, he meant it. It wasn't just a throwaway confession. It's not only Naaman's body that's been changed, his heart has been transformed as well. He came to Israel looking for a fanfare and a wave of the prophet's hand. But when he humbled himself to wash in the Jordan, he came out of that water as a worshiper of the living God. It's not going to be easy for him living for the Lord in Aram. He may well be the only one. Back in 1 Kings, we heard about a man called Obadiah. He was the palace administrator for King Ahab 
who knows how many awkward situations and fine lines Ahab had to, Obadiah had to try and deal with in Ahab's palace. Living for the Lord in that kind of environment. But Obadiah did live for the Lord. The writer of Kings assured us Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. And as Naaman lives for the Lord while working for the king of Aram, we can be sure he is going to face lots of tough situations. He mentions one of them here to Elisha. He's thinking about it already. As part of my responsibilities, can I continue to attend ceremonies in the temple of Rimon, he asks. And maybe you and I would have said no. But Elisha says, go in peace. And in this situation, Elisha is the Lord's mouthpiece. To another person, if Elisha had sensed a lack of commitment to the Lord, he might have challenged that person about wavering between two opinions. He might have told them to pick which side they were really on. But here, Elisha realizes he's not dealing with a wavering man. Naaman has picked his side. He's committed to serving the Lord back home in Aram. Just like the servant girl who sent him to Israel in the first place. They're both going to live for the Lord in a place where the Lord is not worshipped. Not even acknowledged. And Elisha says... Go in peace. The Lord has all kinds of servants in all kinds of places. Why not in the government of pagan Aram? Why not in the pagan BBC? Or the parliament in Westminster? Or 101 other places where we might not think a Christian could even survive? The Lord has all kinds of servants in all kinds of places and they need our prayers. Pray for Dan Walker at the BBC and people like him. Pray for the handful of Christian MPs who are left in Parliament. It's not easy for people to serve the Lord faithfully in those situations. But Naaman is a man going home to do that. He came to Israel, a sick man who was full of pride. But he humbled himself, he was cleansed, he was changed, and he goes back to Aram made new by God's grace. And that same new life is available today to all who abandon their pride and trust in the crucified Savior. If the story ended there, most of us probably could go home feeling comfortable. But this incident we're reading has a sting in the tail. In the final verses of this chapter, a privileged man embraces sin and finds decay. We've met Gehazi before in the book of Kings. He's Elisha's right-hand man. He has an incredible privilege in that position. 
time and time again, he sees God's power up close and firsthand as Elisha ministers in Israel. And to all outward appearances, Gehazi is a healthy man. He has none of the visible disease that Mark Naaman out as a sick man. But it turns out Gehazi's heart is just as sick as Naaman's was. Look what he says in verse 20. Right after Naaman leaves. My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. You notice Gehazi has the right religious language. As surely as the Lord lives, he says. You'd never hear Gehazi speaking about Baal in that way. He has the right religious language. But his heart is far, far from the Lord. That comes across in the rest of what he says. First of all, he refers to Naaman as this Aramean. Gehazi has all the pride of a religious person who thinks he's superior to those people over there. Like the Pharisee in the New Testament who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I'm not like them. I'm glad, Lord, to be in a different class from those grubby sinners. Gehazi has got that same mindset. He's superior, he thinks. But pride isn't his only problem. He is a man overwhelmed by greed. There was a very good reason Elisha had turned down Naaman's money. He knew Naaman came to Israel thinking he could buy God's help. And Elisha wanted to put that idea to death. God's cleansing is free. It's a gracious gift. That's why Elisha wouldn't touch Naaman's money. But Gehazi cannot resist it. He's going to get something from this Aramean. And who cares if it destroys the message of God's grace? Gehazi is like the older son in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. The older son who said to his father, All these years I've been slaving for you. And what do I get out of it? You've showered blessing on that other son of yours, the runaway son. So what's in it for me? Where's my payday for all the service I've given you? Gehazi has been given great privilege. He's seen the Lord at work. He's surrounded by men and women who are faithful to the Lord. But Gehazi is spiritually sick. He thinks he's superior. He's bitter that his service for the Lord hasn't made him rich. His heart doesn't belong to the Lord. It belongs to wealth and pride. Those are his gods. Those are his idols. And in the service of his idols, Gehazi runs to embrace sin. He chases after Naaman. He lies to him. He pretends he's on an errand from Elisha. Some unexpected visitors have come, he says. 
And Naaman is only too happy to pile gifts on Gehazi. Then when he gets back, Gehazi lies to Elijah's face, which is probably the stupidest thing he ever did. After all he's seen of Elisha and the power of God at work in Elisha, Gehazi says, what are you talking about? Where have I been? I didn't go anywhere. Elisha says, I saw you, you idiot. And Elisha also sees the greed in Gehazi's heart. In the middle of verse 26, he says, Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? That seems to be Elisha's insight into all the things Gehazi was lusting after when he chased Naaman down the road. These are the things he longs for as he serves the Lord bitterly, thinking he's been shortchanged by the Lord. He's dreaming about all these other things. The Lord is not Gehazi's God. He worships olive groves and vineyards. Gehazi desperately wanted what Naaman had. And so Elisha says, that's what you're going to get. You've already got Naaman's wealth. And you're going to get the rest of what Naaman had too. Verse 27, Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Naaman the Aramean has been delivered from decay. Gehazi the Israelite is delivered to decay. And so Gehazi is a warning to all those of us who've been around the church for a while. If we've spent time in Christian fellowship, then the book of Hebrews says we have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. We've had the opportunity to see the difference God makes. And that is an enormous privilege. But Gehazi had that kind of privilege. And his heart was still worshipping an idol. And his story ended not in wholeness, but in decay. Decay that would go on to affect his family as well. So the challenge for church people is this. Yes, we all know what God can do. We know all the right words to say about him. We all know people out there who need to humble themselves and come to Jesus. But have we set aside our pride? Have we turned from our idols? Have we come to Jesus to have our spiritual sickness healed? Or are we living for treasure that actually has nothing to do with Jesus? Gehazi and Naaman challenge us to choose our treasure. 
In the end, Naaman chose the cleansing God offered him. And Gehazi chose the stuff Naaman had left behind. Both men got what they chose. And so will we. So let's ask ourselves, what do I want? Am I going to hold on to my pride and my idols and end up getting decay along with them? Or will I let those things go and receive the cleansing and life God holds out to me in Jesus Christ? Will you and I choose to live for Jesus, even though many people find the message of Jesus to be foolishness? And they'll think we're foolish for accepting it. Will you and I find a way to honor Jesus even when we're the only one at school or at work or at home? Those are hard things. But the treasure that comes with those things far outweighs anything else. Jesus said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Each one of us has to choose our treasure. And the whole world is not going to make up for losing our soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cleansing you've made available to us. Thank you that we can come to you sick with our sin. And we can have our guilt and shame washed away at the foot of the cross. We thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ, your son, purifies us from all sin. Thank you that his sacrifice was enough. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, all of them. And so we turn to your salvation. We let go of our pride, our idolatrous dreams, our small, grubby ambitions that we cling to. And we take as our treasure this all-surpassing gift of righteousness. We give up the world because we want to have heaven. We want to have you. We want to live the life that lasts forever. Amen.